Thank you for coming out to this. I find this very encouraging that uh, churches are actually interested in these issues. Uh, it's not the norm. So consider yourself considerably ahead of the curve on this. And so I'm delighted to have a chance to come and have a conversation with, with Carlos and with all of you about this. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I'm from Texas originally, you know, transplanted Californian, I think like a lot of people. Um, and I, I met my wife out here, and my, sort of my folks' worst nightmare is that I'd marry a native Californian and never come back, <laughs> which is precisely what happened. Um, I, looked, I looked the heat and the humidity of Texas in the rearview mirror and had no qualms about saying goodbye to that. Uh, I've, been, I've been on the Talbot faculty for the last 27 years. My primary area of interest is in bioethics, which are the ethical issues at the beginning of life and at the end of life, primarily. What I've realized over the years, and I'll, this is a warn you about this in advance, that getting interested in this field, at least for me, there's been occupational hazards that have come with that. Uh, because God, in his seemingly providential sense of humor, has seen fit to allow this field to follow me home hmm. r regularly during the last 20 years or so. This started, uh, lay, I don't know, mid to late 1980s when all these wild new ways of procreating children were first becoming available. Uh, in vitro fertilization was only about 10 years old at the time, and uh, surrogate motherhood arrangements were, the, they were so wild and out there, they were the stuff of TV miniseries. And about, I started getting interested in the ethical issues surrounding this, uh, and about the same time, my wife and I began a very, very painful, roughly four-year journey with infertility ourselves. And I didn't know quite what to make of that coincidence, uh, but it's, it, I think it was God was trying to teach me that these are not just academic issues, but they are the stuff of real life for people, too. And then a few years later, uh, California, back in the early to mid-90s, had the first, uh, the first of several assisted suicide uh, initiatives that were on the ballot. And it, fa it failed at the time, but I did a lot of speaking and debating on the subject it's about that same time that my wife and I began three long and involved journeys through terminal illnesses with our parents. And walking, walking through the end of life and trying to approach this as, you know, as, as someone trying to be theologically consistent with this, recognizing that earth, earthly life is not the highest good, uh, and therefore it's okay to say enough to medicine under the right conditions. Was really, it was really challenging to make that work at the bedside with our family members. I remember remarking to my wife before I went to visit my dad for the last time before he died a few years ago, uh, he had skin cancer that started right down here in his ankle, and by the time he died, it had gone all the way to his brain. I remember saying to mom, my mom, I said, you know, I sure, I sure hope I don't have to give up my principled uh, position on assisted suicide based on what I see. Uh, and thankfully, he was cared for by hospice physicians and nurses who, in my judgment, are the closest thing this side of eternity to guardian angels watching over someone. Those of you who had hospice, experience with hospice, I see you nodding your heads. Um, and then in, in the early to mid-2000s, you, you may have heard uh, the, the Human Genome Project began and was culminated. Uh, this was the attempt to map the entire human genetic code. 
And after, after that was finished, several diagnostic tests were developed really quickly and came on the market. And one of those tests was the one, it's called BRCA1 and 2, which is the, 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 uh, the gene, the genetic test to see if a woman has the, the genetic marker that gives them a, an, a roughly 85% chance of developing breast cancer at some point in their lifetime. And virtually every woman in my wife's family has had breast cancer. Uh, in fact, her oncologist remarked to her that it's the largest extended family he's ever treated, which was not really something we were aspiring to. Um, and so when the test for you know, BRCA1 and 2 came out, I suggested to my wife, let's just, you know, why, why bother with the test? Let's just assume you're positive. And in retrospect, I don't think that was some of my best advice to her. That, that was not particularly well received and understandably so. But it took her three years to decide whether or not to be tested, and another three years to decide what to do with the information once it came back that she had tested positive. And about that time that she decided to have something done about it, she actually found a tumor herself. And the treatment for breast cancer turned out to be almost exactly what the preventive treatment was going to be. And we, she had a you know, double mastectomy, full reconstruction, six months of chemotherapy, turned out to be a year from hell for us as a family. We still had very young kids. This was 10 years ago. We had very young kids at the time still. So I just, I'll just warn you about that in advance. Getting interested in this field may follow you home, which is why next, my next subject, I'm taking up the prosperity gospel <laughs> in, uh, in the hope that that will follow me home. Well, so. I haven't even asked you a question. So we're, we're in for a long night. But before I do, let me just talk to you guys about the format of this night. The, the night is, uh, my goal is to speak as little as possible and just guide uh, Scott here with, with all the questions that came from you. All of these questions here were, were provided by the audience members. So just keep that in mind as we move forward, which means that you are truly interested in the stuff that we're about to talk about here. I've and, seen, these are all great questions too. So I, I commend you for... Uh, you know, really engaging these things well. Well, we have four topics that we want to cover today, and I hope we can get, have time to go through all of them. And the first one has to do with, with abortion, uh, Dr. Ray. And maybe you can talk a little bit more, because I think it will hit in a lot of areas if you talk about who, who is a member of the human community. This, I think it's, it's, it's probably a good thing that we start there, because I think that's the most foundational question. In fact, I think that's probably the most fundamental question that any culture can ask about itself. Who's a member of the human community? At what, at what point does, human, does, we would say, does human personhood begin? The question, most of the time it gets asked, when does life begin? Or when does human life begin? That's actually not a hard question to answer. And science can answer that definitively for us because human life begins at conception. Because from the earliest points of pregnancy, as soon as, soon as the, uh, we hear you have an embryo that's created, it is both alive and it is fully human. Right? There's really not much debate about that. The debate is over whether or not embryos and fetuses, and now increasingly today, newborns, constitute persons who have rights and protectability both morally and under the law. Uh, increasingly, newborns are being put in this category of uh, 
of human beings, but maybe not persons. In fact, in the last two or three years, there's been, I think, there's been renew, a new sense of, at least in academic circles, uh, of a new sense of, um, uh, would be, respect is not quite the right term, but a, a new sense of uh, the moral acceptability of infanticide. In fact, they, the, the there's a new term that's been coined for this. Today it's being referred to as the afterbirth abortion. And they rightly, the proponents of this rightly recognize that at birth, there's really, there's no morally relevant difference between a fetus one day before birth and a, and a newborn one day after birth, except a change of location, which last time I checked, location was completely irrelevant to what kind of a thing you are. And there's a, a, a slight change in the degree of dependence that the, that the baby has on the mother. Now, those of you who have had newborns know that on the first day after birth, there's only a, I would say, a minimal change in the degree of dependence. It just looks different. The baby is just outside the woman's body. Uh, the, the real question is, at what point do you have a person? And that's not a scientific question. That's a philosophical one. And from a Christian worldview, I think we would also say that's one where our theology has something to say about that. Uh, and so what, what I want to be really careful that we don't allow science to dictate answers to philosophical questions. Right? Now, scientists have a lot to say about science. But most scientists that I've come across are not trained in philosophy. And they are, I think, with all respect, they are stepping outside their field when they are making philosophical pronouncements with, under, the, under the guise of scientific authority. Uh, and I, I'm, in fact, I was, I was in a debate on this a few years ago. And I actually, I nearly fell off. I was sitting on a stool just like that. I nearly fell off of it when the scientist who was on the other, who was on the other side said, I agree that when some, someone becomes a person is not a scientific question. I'd never had anyone concede that before. What he suggested, though, was the alternative, was that, it, was that if science couldn't determine it, then anybody's answer to that was as good as anybody else's. And I said, clearly, that's not true either, because there are, there are good reasons that we ask for for the philosophical positions that we take. Uh, Increasingly today, uh, many, many folks who support more liberal abortion rights are actually conceding that the unborn child is actually a person with full rights to life that can be trumped by the mother's right over her own body. Okay? The reason that is becoming more, a more, uh, uh, more of a consensus position is not because of morality, but it's because of technology. We have, any of you who've had children just in the last, you know, five years or so, may have had access to a, you know, a 4D ultrasound to view your child in the womb. And that is essentially like being really up close and personal with the baby in the womb. It's a remarkable piece of technology that is enabling us to look into the womb like we never had before. And it's, I think it's getting harder and harder to make the case that unborn children are merely clumps of cells or pieces of tissue, sort of analogous to kidneys and livers. Um, 
And I think that's getting, that's getting harder to sustain. So what I would suggest is that if we can see that the unborn child is a person, then I would suggest that the unborn child, you know, far from being a threat to the mother, actually has a claim on the mother for the resources he or she needs to flourish. Right? Let me ask you a question. How many, any, how many of you in the room, anybody, have children that are whether one year old or, or younger? Anybody? Okay. How old, how old's your child? 11 months. 11 months? Okay. Okay. All right. Let's say, I'm going to take you for an example. What's your name? Stacia. Stacia. Let me take you for an example. Uh, let's say that uh, you're 11-month-old. Let's say this was a few months ago. Um, and you, let's just say your baby had gone through a rough patch and you weren't sleeping at all. And maybe that's still the case. Uh, my kids didn't sleep through the, the night till about they were 15 months old. But let's say that that, you know, that happens and you desperately need a break and to get away. And instead of calling on someone, maybe grandparents or neighbors or relatives, to watch your baby while you get away, uh, you decide that you're going to go to Hawaii for the next two weeks. And what you do before you leave, you put a stack of diapers by the crib, and you put a bunch of bottles in the fridge enough to last for two weeks, and on your way out the door, you pet the, pat your baby on top of the head and say, I'll see you in two, in two or three weeks. Right? Now, think, think about who would, who would be there to greet you when you got back from Hawaii? Let's name them. Who would they be? Police. Who else? Child Protective Services. Who else? Grandma and Grandpa who would be very upset. Okay? Who else? Sorry? Okay. Maybe, okay? I, th I think there's also a good chance the coroner would be there to meet you, okay? Now, you would undoubtedly have lots of hard questions from the district attorney, okay? But what, what exactly have you done wrong? What would you be charged with, okay? At the least, I think negligent homicide, okay? Maybe, you know, manslaughter, you know, maybe a, maybe a you know, callous indifference, something like that. Okay? And what would be the reason why you would be charged with those things? The reason is because we would say that the child has a claim on you as a parent for the resources that he or she needs to survive and flourish. Now, of course, subject to financial limits, and, 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 if, and generally the state says if you're not fit to provide those resources, we have obligations to the child that, would, that we would take the child and put him or her with someone else who does have the resources and the ability to do that. Okay? Now, if that's true, if we've conceded that the unborn child is a person, and if that's true of an 11-month-old, why wouldn't that also be true of the baby in the womb? I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. And see, I think you can make a good argument today that the unborn child actually has a claim on the mother's body for the resources that he or she needs to flourish. What the Bible teaches on this is that you, you, we, have, we have a person from the earliest points of pregnancy forward. Psalm 139 is very clear about God's creative, magnificent handiwork in the womb. And I think what I would suggest is for, I think the way, the way I'd illustrate this is for a pregnant woman, and I know I can't do that, but uh, is to say, you know, God at work you know, do not disturb, okay? 
And I think pray, uh, abortion stops the handiwork of God in the womb. And for someone who takes the Bible seriously, I think that's actually enough to say that abortion is a problem. Okay? Now, I think there, yeah, there are times we need to do this compassionately. We need to recognize that very, very few women make this choice frivolously. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a serious uh, decision, and mo- most women who end pregnancies do so out of a profound sense of guilt and, and feeling like they're making a, a big, important moral decision. But I, what, I, what I would put on back to the, the person who says, well, uh, I, don't believe, I don't believe you have a person in the womb, I'd say, well, at what point do you have one? And birth is obviously just a change of location. So is implantation. There's no real place along the continuum where you can say consistently that one day after this, you have a person, and one day before it, you don't. What that suggests is that you have a person from conception forward, and that all, all of us, by virtue of having an immaterial part to us as well as a body, have a continuity of personal identity from conception forward. We are the same person, so we don't, uh, embryos don't develop, they don't become fetuses, they mature into what they already are. That's a that's, 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 that maybe that's a, a little long longer answer, answer than you had. That's in mind. okay. You um, mentioned that you have philosophers that want to decide. That you have scientists that want to decide. Well, at the end of it, who gets to decide when human life begins? Uh, well, f- f- I mean, f- philosophers get to. I think f- philosophers, I think, have the most training to deal with philosophical questions. My only, my only point at the very beginning was we should not concede the authority of science on non-scientific questions. Okay. Uh, now, ultimately, I think from a Christian worldview, you know, it's the Scripture that makes that call for us. Uh, and the Bible uses, the Bible in a number of places, uses conception and birth interchangeably as though we're really referring to just two equivalent points along the same continuum. Well, along some of those same lines, I remember a story last year. You might be familiar with her, Scott. It's a girl by the name of Brittany Maynard. She was 29 years old. She had her whole life ahead of her. She had just gotten married, and she was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. In fact, treating that brain tumor, I understand, would have actually decreased her life, not prolonged it. And and she ended up moving to Oregon, and she was kind of at the center of physician-assisted suicide. So I have a... I guess all the the questions are all connected, but but the first one is, is suicide an unforgivable sin? And then also, can you talk a little bit more about what the potential ramifications in our society would be long-term by having things like that pass? As we know, it's passed in California, Oregon, Washington, Montana, and uh, Vermont. Vermont, those five. And and all over Europe, for the most part. yeah, suicide's not an unpardonable sin. The only sin that's unpardonable is, de- is denial of the work of Christ on the cross as sufficient to get us salvation. That's, that's the only thing that, as far as I can tell in the Scripture, that uh, is un- sort of beyond the pale of forgiveness. Um, the, the, the Bible actually doesn't have a lot to say about suicide, not to mention assisted suicide per se. Most of the time... Uh, there really was, it was very few instances of what we would call mercy killing today in, in the Scripture. Uh, and when those occur, they, they, are, they are always condemned as, 
as wrong. Now, there are usually other factors involved besides the fact that it was a mercy killing that made them wrong. Uh, but yeah, there's, what, what the Bible's clear about is the, the sanctity and sacredness of innocent life. Uh, and the reason for that is because human beings are made in the image of God, unlike any other part of creation. Human beings have a status, uh, an, an elevated status. Psalm 8 describes this as being made a little lower than God uh, by virtue of being made in, in His image. And I take it what, what the Bible means by that is that the, the image of God is a status that we have that, uh, of being God's, God's representative on the earth. An image in the ancient world was, a, was like a graven image that represented God in the, or a God in the particular place where it was put. And human beings are like that when it comes to, the, to being in the image of God. We are the representatives of God in, in the world. Uh, and as a result, have an elevated status over the rest of creation. I'd be really careful about not specifically linking the image of God to certain functions that we have, like rationality or the ability to have relationships. All those are important things, and, they, and we have those things because we are God's special creation. We have rationality because we were created by a rational God. We have, relate, we can, we have the capacity for relationships because God being three persons in one is fundamentally relational. But I wouldn't connect those necessarily to the image of God per se, because you can have more or less of rationality. You can have more or less of a capacity for relationships. Uh, but the image of God is an all or nothing thing. You, you either, you either you're made in the image of God or you're not. And I'd want to be careful that we don't connect the image of God to some of these functions that can exist in degrees because the image of God is not something that we have in degrees. You, I mean, we, we either are in the image of God or we're not. What worries me about, I mean, as, as compassionate as I was for Brittany Maynard, and hers was, it was a heartbreaking story. Um, I mean, her, she, I mean, she was, she, I mean, she was a beautiful young woman. And she had just, true, she had just gotten married, um, and she was very worried about what the end of life was going to be like for her. Uh, I think one thing that got lost in, the, in a lot of that discussion, and I think gets lost in a lot of our, the way we view the end of life, is the ability of medicine today to control virtually everyone's pain at the end of life. Hospice physicians will tell you. Uh, in fact, this is it's really interesting to listen to when the talk shows were going around when, assisted, when the assisted suicide um, bill was headed through the legislature. I mean, anytime there was somebody on a talk show, uh, the hospice physicians or hospice nurses would, as soon as they would call in, the debate on the issue of pain control was really over. Because they, they essentially said there, it's very rare that we cannot effectively control someone's pain at the end of life. Um, and I think that would have been possible for her, too. Um, now, that, in fact, that, that, the, the fact that pain is not really the main reason why people advocate for assisted suicide today. It makes for a really good 30-second soundbite. But that's actually not the main reason 
that people advocate for assisted suicide. They do so on an autonomy basis, that it's my life and I should be able to decide the timing and manner of my death according to my values, and it's, you know, it's my life, my body, my choice. Well, the Bible, I think, has something different to say to people who are committed to following Jesus, and that is that your body's not your own. You're a temp- your body is a temple of the Spirit. And you, you, Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians makes it very clear that, that we are not our own, that our bodies have been bought with a price. And the Bible is very clear that there is a time to be born and a time to die. And that, and that it has been appointed unto human beings to die once and then comes judgment, the author of Hebrews tells us. Appointed by whom? It's understood they're appointed by God. Uh, let me know when you shoot that picture again and I'll give you a... <laughs> All right. There we go. Uh, and so I think for the, for the, for the person committed to following Jesus, uh, I would say theologically assisted suicide is off the table for the same reason that murder is off the table. Uh, because the timing and manner of the death of innocent human beings is a prerogative that belongs to God alone. That, that's, just, that's just not, that's not a human prerogative. And I think in, in, in virtu- again, in virtually every case at the end of life, medicine is capable of controlling people's pain adequately. And the, the, it, what, what, I, what I think often goes unnoticed at the end of life, and I think one thing, one of the things Brittany Maynard was very worried about, and I think she raised a, a really good point on this, is that uh, mental health, mental illness, especially severe depression, is very common among people who have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses. You know, what a surprise. And, but that is hardly ever treated at the end of life. We, we just assume that people will sort of suck it up and deal with it. Uh, and we, we don't... We, we, we're good at treating the pain. We're not as good at treating the depression that comes with mental illness. And I think, if anything, some of these cases are, are helping us to see that there's a really important component to that that we've missed uh, in our view of the end of life. Now, to be, let me be really clear. Just because I think assisted suicide ought to be off the table, and I'll, 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 I'll speak just a minute to why I think it's problematic for it to be legalized, but I think for, we, I, for, especially for a believer, I would not want to say that, that as a result, we are obligated to keep everyone alive at all times and at all costs, because that's not true either. Okay? The Bible's really clear that earthly life is not our highest good, that de- death and dying was not a part of God's original plan. Uh, but it's, it is, it, it exists, it's in our world because of the pervasiveness of sin. It's a universal experience because sin is a universal experience. And it, we, we are not, it is okay under the right conditions to say stop to medicine. I told my dad this about four months before he died. He had had, he had two rounds of chemotherapy and the third one was really going to be nasty. And they weren't doing squat for his cancer and I'm, I'm convinced they were killing him far faster than they were doing anything to the cancer. And I, said, I just said, Dad, you, you, you can tell medicine to, to say, stop, and say enough. Uh, and, now, and I think what he recognized, 
Although he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't decide this. But I think he recognized that shorter in longevity and better in quality is better than longer in longevity and far worse in quality. That's not an irrational decision to say stop to medicine. Okay? Now, we do so when, when treatment is futile or when it's more burdensome than beneficial. Okay? And for just so you're aware, too, uh, under the law, if a competent adult tells, medicine, tells doctors and nurses to stop, under the law, you have to. And normally, they, they will say they want to because one of those other two conditions is met, that it's futile or more burdensome than beneficial. So we are not suggesting here that we have to keep everybody alive with all sort of full-court press medicine until the bitter end. That's not true. And, it's the, and, and you can hold to the sanctity of life without believing that it's the highest good. Okay? And I think if, if we say that we are obligated to keep everyone alive at all times and at all costs, we are saying that earthly life is the highest good, which theologically I don't think we want to say. Because our highest good, the Bible tells us, is our eternal fellowship with God that will go on forever. So I, 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 want, I want to be really careful to be clear about that. When, my, when I wheeled my father-in-law out of the hospital for the last time, after having surgery for a bladder tumor, he said, don't ever bring me here again. And I, I got the message. It took my wife a little while to get it, because it was her dad, but... Uh, he didn't, want, he didn't want to die. He just wanted to live out the rest of his days without the intrusions of medicine. And I, and I think that was okay. Did that, that answer your question? Yes, and then okay. some potential ramifications uh, to our society See, I, long term. I, I told you, I get, I, get, I get wound up on this stuff. I warned you about that. Specifically to physician-assisted suicide. And, and honestly, I think we can take this into any other topic that we're going to cover. What are the long-term ramifications of where our society is heading and allowing for, for some of these things. Yeah, it, it's, a really, it's a really good question. And wherever that came from, that came from a really smart person. Ryan. Whoever, 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 hopefully that's not the guy with the UCLA hat on though, is it? It is. Oh, no, not him. Oh, okay, just but, checking. But he's a UCLA fan too. Just so. checking, all right. Uh, here's, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to answer without being prophetic, which I don't claim to be. Um, but I think we can look and see what's happening in Europe. Europe's about 20 years ahead of us on this. And there's a very, uh, what I find, a very disturbing trend going on in Europe at present that's, that's connected to legalizing assisted suicide. Uh, for, for those of us who are on the, you know, in the baby boom generation, uh, that would include you, although you don't look like it. Um, I'm a baby boom. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> yeah, over, over the next 20 years, we're going to have an unprecedented percentage of the population over the age of 65, and a shrinking population of people of working age to provide for Medicare and Social Security. Uh, I'm not exact. I think I'm not sure when the day is that both of them are supposed to be bankrupt. But I, but I know it's going to be in the next probably 15 to 20 years. Uh, and in Europe already, they are anticipating the same kind of demographic landslide that's going to come in the U.S. And, and people are explicitly connecting 
legalizing assisted suicide with being able to handle the demographic landslide that the European countries are facing. It's under the assumption, as a, as a friend of mine who's a, who, who is a, she's, she's a geriatrician in this field, she said, she's really crass, she said, there's nothing cheaper than dead. Now let that sink in a bit. The specialists in Europe who are advocating assisted suicide being legalized are going out of that philosophy. It's not just about human beings having the right to make their own choices. It's going to be, it's going to be increasingly about someone else making some of those choices for us, for, e for economic reasons. Uh, the, uh, one of the best, I think one of the best known advocates for this is uh, probably one of the best known figures in Europe in bioethics, Baroness Mary Warnock, who put it very bluntly. She said, if you are, he said, if you have dementia, you are wasting the resources of the National Health Service. Now that, in my view, that is a long way from the Bible's mandate not to end the lives of the most vulnerable, but to actually care for them. And the measure of a culture, I would suggest, is the degree to which we care for the least among us. And this, I find, a very troubling trend uh, that's going on in Europe. And I, I, people just haven't really said it out loud that much here yet. But watch, they, they will start saying this out loud in the next five to ten years. So we're running the risk, essentially, of right now it becomes our decision, but in the future that's going to be taken it away. It may not be, right. And so, I mean, think about it like this. Let's, let's say, I mean, you guys don't look nearly old enough to have, to have this be a decision, but I'll, since you're on the front row, I'll use you for an example. Let's, let's say that... Uh, this yeah, Sean and this, Michelle, by the way. Sean and Michelle. Let's say that they are our elderly parents. Okay. okay? That's and, a stretch. Uh, <laughs> And let's say, let's say Sean has just by, been diagnosed with a, a terminal illness uh, that's going to require lots of treatment, lots of care. And let's say that, let's say you and I, let's say we've got a, you know, another, let's say you're, you're one of our siblings here. And the three of us get together and we start putting the pressure on you to say, are you really sure you want to go down the road with all these treatments? It's going to be a terrible end. It's going to be terribly painful. It's going to, it's going to deplete this, the vast financial resources that you've laid aside for the three of us. God bless you. Uh, why not? Let's just, let's just do assisted suicide. Now, we would, we would I mean, lovingly and gently beat on them over a period of a few months. But eventually, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see us coercing you into signing that declaration, not because you're tired of living, but because we are tired of your living. And here's the catch. Under the law in California, that kind of coercion is illegal. And in fact, if, if assisted suicide is carried out and we've coerced you, we've all been guilty of a felony. But here's the question. Who will ever know that we've done this? How will, how will this part of the law ever be enforced? Because nobody will ever know, you know, unless you rat us out, which, you know... My well, she might. She might actually be in cahoots. You know, and your personal physician, you know, might actually be in cahoots with us too, who, who would claim confidentiality for those discussions. 
But I think the, the catch is nobody will ever know that we have done a terrible thing to dear old dad because who will, who will find out without, an, without an, you know, the only way that happens is if somebody bugs your house and has access to those conversations. So I think that in, even in principle, keeping assisted suicide strictly voluntary is going to be virtually impossible to do. And in the countries in Europe where this has been going on for some time, uh, the rate in the Netherlands, for example, of, the, of cases both of assisted suicide and euthanasia that are done without the consent of the patient is about rough, roughly 15 to 18 percent of all of the cases of euthanasia. And if you extrapolate that to a country the size of the United States, that's a lot of folks. And I don't think there's any doubt that if someone has been minister, administered assistance in suicide without their consent, they have been harmed. And, and very, I think that's a very important civil right that I think has been violated. Well, I'm going to start recording all conversations with my kids now I've... as a result of that. Staying in the topic of, of suicide, death, and uh, assisted suicide, the can't, Bible we says... Can't, we can't leave this unhappy subject yet? <laughs> well, just because they asked, I want to make sure that whoever Five, asked this uh, gets their answer. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. But what about defending our country? Okay. Um, and then we'll move on. No, we can, we, can, we can take the death penalty, too, if you like. Well, take them together. Um, okay, we can. Uh, I think, you, for one, as you translate the Scripture correctly, the Sixth Commandment does not... It does not read, thou shalt not kill. It reads, thou shalt not murder. And it implies a murder with malice also. Um, now, I w there, there are a lot, I mean, there's a lot of debate about this. But I would, consider there, there, I would consider there are three exceptions to the mandate about taking innocent life. Okay? One is in self-defense. Although I would, not, I would not consider somebody who is attacking me and who's, 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 who's a mortal threat to my life, those, those, they're not innocent people, for one. Uh, neither are combatants in a just war. Uh, and that just war, that's got a lot of caveats to it. But combatants in a just war, I think uh, that, can be, that can be an extension of the argument from self-defense. Uh, and I would, I would put... I would put law enforcement in the same, under the same category with that. Uh, and then I would also, there's, a, I think, a third legitimate area where human life can be taken, though I wouldn't call the person innocent either, is in the death penalty. I think, uh, I, I, don't think the, I don't think the Bible prohibits using force in self-defense. As long as the threat is real and imminent. And our law, I think, tr our law, I think, has some of the same distinctions as Scripture does. Let's imagine that you and I have a disagreement about one of these topics, and we come to blows, and we take it out in the parking lot, and, you know, you're wailing away on me, and I turn around, and I say, I'm going to get a gun. Okay? Now, once I've turned around and headed the other direction, what you do to me moves from self-defense to assault. Because once I've turned, I'm no longer an imminent threat. Right? And it doesn't, matter what I, it doesn't matter what I say I'm going to do. Uh, the, what the Bible prohibits is retaliation. Okay? 
I think that's what Jesus prohibited when he said, turn the other cheek. Because that is someone who slaps you across the right cheek is not, just, just act that, is not, it's not this. If, if it were against the left cheek, it would, be, it, could be, it would be a roundhouse with an attempt to really seriously hurt someone. Jesus makes it clear that it's a slap across the right cheek, which is a backhand, which is an insult or humiliation. That's different. Now, when Jesus, when he says, turn the other cheek, I don't think he's literally suggesting that if I did this, you're obligated to turn the other one, literally. I think what he, what he is suggesting is, by turning the other cheek, is you do just the opposite, the polar opposite of what the natural reaction would be, which is what? What's your natural reaction if I do this? To defend to strike myself. Back. Well, it would be to retaliate, to right. strike back. So I think, I think what the Bible's prohibiting is retaliation, not necessarily self-defense. And I, although I have, I have a number of colleagues who are, are, who I would call sort of full-blown pacifists, I realize this is a friend's church too. Yes. Um, so I'm not, I'm not ignorant of the tradition that, that exists in this denomination. But I don't, I don't think the Bible mandates uh, the absolute, uh, the, the absolute uh, pro- prohibition on the use of force in legitimate cases of self-defense. I think St. Augustine, I think, had this right when he said, I'm paraphrasing here, imagine that if, if you come upon someone uh, who, is, who is beating and threatening and about to kill your some, someone else, and if you, if you stand idly by or don't take sufficient steps to stop the attack, Augustine put it like this, he said, how can you say that you fulfilled the mandate to love your neighbor? And I think, I think the mandate to love your neighbor suggests that in, at, at, at times, and I think they're, fa- I think they're fairly rare, uh, you are obligated to use force in defense of neighbor or defense of self. And I think that's, that's acceptable to do. Now, obviously, it should be a last resort. I understand. Um, in terms of the, the death penalty, I think is, that, that's a really challenging one. I don't, think, I, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with requiring life for life. Okay? But I also don't think that, ver- I don't think all that much is lost by a life sentence without parole instead of the death penalty. Given the fact that we, we know mistakes have been made uh, and with fallible human beings involved, I think the chances of mistakes being made in the future I think are still likely. Uh, I'm not sure we gain enough by having the death penalty to offset what's lost with the risk of mistakes being made. So I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with the death penalty in principle, but I have, I have problems with some of the ways, that, the ways sure, it's administered. that could be administered. So. Well, why don't we change subjects, because you kind of scared me on that one a little bit. So Sorry. Sorry. I lost my head there for a minute. <laughs> and I think we're going to spend quite considerable time on this one, but there's an author by the name of James McDonald, and in his book of Being Authentic Christians, I believe some of you guys are aware of that book, He states that in areas of major importance, 
we practice commitment. And in those areas of minor importance, we practice tolerance. But in all areas, however, we are called to love. But I think a lot of us would agree with that. But so let's start this topic about same-sex marriage, homosexuality. What emphasis should we put on disagreements about being born gay or not? None. No importance. Can you I elaborate think, on I that? I think it, that's irrelevant. It's, I think it's, it's irrelevant to the moral discussion of this. Uh, just, I think just to be clear about that, those aren't the only two choices. Uh, there are other choices. Um, when someone, usually, not always, usually when someone says they are born gay, what they mean by that is that it's genetic. And as of today, to the best of my knowledge, there is no evidence of a genetic connection to homosexuality, to a, to a same-sex attraction. Uh, that's not to say that it's a choice. I don't believe it's a choice. I believe in there, but there are lots of other choices. There are lots of other options between it being completely determined and being a choice. Uh, I, I'm happy to think that in, in most cases it, it, it's, it's a developmental thing. Uh, I think if we had seen, if there were evidence of a genetic link to this, then the, the twin studies would be much more determinative than they actually are. Uh, and we, we would, I, I assure you, you would have seen, on, on the day that that was, was made public, that would have been the lead story and probably the only news story on every major media outlet around the world. Can you explain the twin Story again, or, yeah. or study? Uh, if, if, it's, if it's genetic, we, what we'd be suggesting is it's genetic like, like other genetic conditions are, like hair color, eye color, or even a genetic abnormality that's genetically determined, like Down syndrome. Down syndrome is, a, is, is caused by a single genetic glitch in your genome. Okay? Now, most, most of our characteristics come from a, the, the interaction of a wide variety of genetic factors. But there are numerous things that are single gene or you know, a handful of genes that have, causal, uh, have a causal relationship to getting that trait. Uh, and there, again, as of today, there is, there is no evidence that there is any genetic component to this. Now, I, in my view, even if there were, I don't think that affects the moral dimension of it. Because I think the, the Bible, I think, distinguishes, and I think we ought to distinguish between the attraction and the behavior. What the Bible comments on is the behavior, not the attraction. Right? Although, I, and I, I'm considering lust, lust is a behavior. Lust is a choice to act out on the attraction. Right? The attraction, it seems to me, is morally neutral. For example, I think it's quite possible for me to be attracted to somebody else besides my wife. Okay? That's morally neutral. It just, it just is what it is. Okay? Now, my choice comes in with the next step. If, I, if, that, if that moves to lust, then I've made a choice to mentally undress the person and take her to bed. And, and obviously, any further acting out on that is, is a choice. Okay? But the attraction itself 
is, I think, in, in, in almost every case that I'm aware of, is not a choice, and therefore not something that we are morally culpable for. Again, it just, it just it is what it is. Right? Now, I think, that, I think it, theologically we would say that the same-sex attraction I don't think is what God originally intended. And so there is, a, there is an element of somehow some wires getting crossed. Right? Because I, I don't think, that's, that was, I think that was part of the original design. Okay? But I think this, this distinction, I think, goes a long way in our churches becoming hospitable places for people who wrestle with sexual orientation or even people who have decided, you know, I, I've, I give up. I give up trying to change. Okay? Um, and see, I, I think the issue revolves around the behavior, not the orientation. And I, I don't have, I, I, I mean, our churches should be very welcoming places for people who have same-sex attraction, but who have chosen, like, like the Bible demands for everyone else, to, to maintain a life of sexual purity. And it's purity that I'm after, not so much a change of orientation, which I think is, is rare, rarely, if ever, not if ever, but it's, it's not the norm for change in orientation to take place. Matt, can you put 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 up on the screen? Under that premise, uh, Scott, how, how does this compare? I mean, the, the sin of homosexuality, I mean, you're talking about the action of it, uh, acting out on it. How does it compare to other sins mentioned in the Scripture? I wish that we got just as exercised about adultery as we did about everything else on this list. I wish we got just as exercised about fraud about slander, about greed and callousness for the poor. In fact, as I read the Scripture, uh, I don't think it's possible, actually, to, to say that you are faithfully following Christ if you have a callous attitude toward the poor. Uh, that's a, you, you having a, a tender heart for the poor, I would say, is a constituent, a necessary element of faithfully following Jesus. If you don't have that, you're not doing the other. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, that sexual ethics is not important. Uh, but I think th there are, I think there, there are lots of other areas. Like, I, I wish we got as exercised about adultery as we did about homosexuality. Uh, Can you define what you mean by exercised? You're talking about worked up, uh, yeah, active. Yeah, like passionate about it, um, about opposing it. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> um, right. Now, the, the good, I think the good news here from, from, from verse 11 is it says, you know, you know in verse 11, and, and that such were some of you in their midst. But regardless of where they've come from, People can, can be washed and cleansed and sanctified in the name of Christ and by God's Spirit. I don't think that necessarily or even normally involves a change of orientation. I think that's, that's a myth to think. Now, there are, I, I, there, I, I will say there are times God's Spirit can do anything, okay? but the norm 
uh, is, is similar to other types of things. Take, for example, just as an example, um, an alcoholic who comes to faith. Okay? What generally happens to their desire to drink? Usually not very much. Continues. Right? They, they usually, I mean, coming to faith does not exempt an alcoholic from having to go through a 12-step program. It's not a shortcut. What coming to faith helps an alcoholic do is to be content without drinking. And generally they have two steps, you know, three steps forward and two steps back, and it's a battle. Um, and I think the same, the same is true with uh, a same-sex attraction, that we should not expect that when someone comes to faith that that either necessarily or even normally involves a change of orientation. Now, it might. I, I don't, you know, I, 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 I would I, I'd never say never. But I, that's, that's not the norm. And I, and I think that's unrealistic to expect that. Uh, and I, I mean, I think what the emphasis in the church, it seems to me, is what, we, is what ought to be applicable to all of us, which is the, man, the Bible's mandate about sexual purity. And there is, there is no reason that... Uh, someone who with a same-sex attraction can't, you know, can't be you know, a, a, a thoroughgoing part of the life of the church. I think uh, I don't. I don't see any reason why, uh, uh, if if they if they have a track record of sexual purity, they can't can't be involved in leadership. They can't be ordained. I think they could be on the pastoral staff. I don't. There's no reason if they're if the if the, if the orientation is morally neutral, like I'm suggesting then the behavior is what matters. I understand. Well, in the case, and I think most people here would agree where evangelical Christians stand when it comes to even just bringing up the subject, we, we, it's almost like without meaning to, we're coming across judgmental and hateful. But can you talk a little bit more about some of the arguments that proponents are using for same-sex marriage or same-sex uh, relationships in general? You talked about earlier autonomy uh, arguments. You talked about before fairness arguments, and then I'll, I'll ask you another question relating that. I mean, how, do, how do we hold that bar of righteousness, understanding what the Bible says? And you're right. Maybe we should emphasize adultery more and, and pay attention to that as well as a church. But yeah. how, do we, how do we even mention the word homosexual around the LGBT community without sounding hateful or judgmental? Well, I think, you know, we've, had, you know, we've long had a maxim where you hate the sin and love a sinner. Sure. And I would truncate that. I would say our obligation today, love the person, period. Love, love the person. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, we, as, as we preach and teach and talk about marriage from, from Scripture, uh, I, think, I think we're called to preach and teach the Scripture accurately and, and hold to that. But... I, th I think mo most people in the LGBT community know what the church thinks about this. What they don't always see and don't always know is that we love them. And that's what they need to see, in, in my view. I think if, and if that, if that, that may run the risk of overcorrecting, but I think that that's a chance I'm willing to take for the moment. Um, now, I think on the, at the same time, I think we have, to, we have to call out 
and this is multiple segments of culture, not just, not just the LGBT community, like multiple segments of culture equ now equate disagreement with intolerance. And that's what, then that, I think that more than anything else is what has contributed to the demise of civil discourse in our culture about moral issues. Obviously, we believe that there's an objective morality, or else we wouldn't be so passionate about trying to convince one another about our positions. But we, nobody gets passionate. You know, I don't get passionate trying to convince you that vanilla ice cream tastes better than chocolate oh, in a matter of opinion. Okay, now you may think I'm nuts, but, I mean, we don't generally have a big argument about that. Right? Well, we do have an argument about moral matters because we believe that, there is an, that, that morality is more than just a matter of opinion. Right? Um, so, I, in, in, and this is where, no, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, well, yeah, we do it on time. Now we better move on. Let me, let me just say, I think, I think it's, it's, worth, it's worth reminding ourselves that uh, the original idea that our founders had about tolerance, only, it only made sense if you presumed disagreement. Right? Why would you need to tolerate someone with whom you agreed on everything? The whole notion of tolerance presumes that you disagree on the issue, but tolerance means you treat someone with respect and dignity and civility. And that's what I think has, has, has collapsed in the last few years. Um, and this, I think, this is why I think in many circles, uh, we, we, have to, we have to be, I think we have to be careful, uh, we have to be winsome, uh, we have to be, you know, we, we have to lead with love. Absolutely. And that, that I think covers, uh, I think that covers a multitude of other things. This is why for, for me, I've had students ask, you know, uh, uh, routinely, they say, you know, my, my brother or sister is... Uh, you know, is homosexual or lesbian, and they're getting married, and they want me to come. I say, of course you ought to go to that. Because what, think about what would you gain by staying home? Are you, are you, you're, if you're trying to get a message across by staying home, chances are that's a message that somebody already knows, right? And all you're doing, what's lost there by staying home is that you further alienate your brother or sister or family member, and you and the distance grows, and you have less opportunity to be some sort of, you know, to be in their lives. Um, so I, I would, you know, you, some of you may disagree with me on that, but I, I just, I, I think what's lost by sitting something out like that really outweighs what is gained. It sounds like it's not a moral choice, a choice but rather uh, your choice to attend someone's wedding and support? Well, I mean, somebody, I mean, you may have folks here that, that say that I'm doing something immoral, that by showing up, you're actually condoning same-sex marriage. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true, because I think you can... I mean, I've gone, I've, I've gone to lots, lots of weddings that, uh, 
I didn't give a snowball's chance in Sheol of them succeeding. Uh, and I've actually, I've actually performed a wedding or two that I regretted afterwards because I knew, I, I knew this, this, was, this was not good. Um, so I don't, I don't think that necessarily means that you're condoning that. Talking about the, did, the, I, did I say something to offend all these people no, that are just now are, leaving the room? They are, are they're younger. They have to go meet in their classroom before before they dismiss. But I just want to make sure. It sounds like this is a, a minor importance, not major importance, is what you're saying. Attending the wedding, I would say. Yes. Yeah, and I, you know, you may disagree with me on this too, but I probably would have baked the cake. <laughs> I think a cake, a cake is a cake, and you know, I would. You know, even though it was an obvious setup, you know, I would have provided the pizza for the reception. Even though I can't imagine, I mean, who has pizza at a wedding reception? Yeah. You know, I mean, that was obvious. You're setup. stretching but it, but yeah, I, I would have, you know, that's, in my view, that's a no harm, no foul. Well, it also but sounds like that's letting love prevail. I think so, yeah. There's also some other proponents of same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships that are considered scholars out there. You might have heard of a few of them that say that, that we, the church, or, or the evangelical Christians, misrepresent what the Bible has to say regarding homosexuality. In fact, that they, they, to paraphrase it, they say that it's like a natural or normal behavior and therefore okay to engage in homosexual behavior. Can you speak into that a bit more? Yeah, do we have the next hour and a half? Well, no. How about 10 minutes? That's what, that's what, that's what I devote in class to this discussion. Uh, yeah, in fact, the, uh, there, there are lots of different, I think, reinterpretations of uh, some of the biblical texts. Some of them, I think, actually have some merit to them. You know, for example... The episode about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 and 20, I think has nothing to do with the discussion about committed monogamous same-sex relationships because that condemns non-consensual sex. And I think regardless of where you stand on the, you know, on the issue of same-sex attraction and relations, uh, I think we would all agree that non-consensual sex is immoral. End of story. So I wouldn't, I don't think, the episode of Solomon and Gomorrah has much to do with this. Most of it revolves around different understandings of Romans 1. Some, some will say that it takes, it's, it's only sex that takes place in the context of idolatrous worship. And there was lots of religious prostitution in the first century. Uh, but there's nothing in the text in Romans 1 that suggests it's limited to just that arena. Paul also, it's also suggested that uh, what, what Paul's condemning there are people, people who are acting in a way contrary to their sexual nature, a, a case of sexual inversion, where that'd be straight people having gay sex and gay people having straight sex. Okay? I think that, I think, is, is reading way into the biblical text on that because it assumes that your sexual orientation is, or, or let me put it this way, it assumes that what is the natural orientation is subjective. <coughs> that is, it's, it's determined by how you determine it. But in Romans 1, Paul makes it very clear that the natural orientation is something that's objective, which means that it's true regardless of how we feel about it. And he maintains that it is the, it is the natural, the, he describes men having the natural relations with women. He describes the natural relation as specifically heterosexual. Uh, now, the other, the, the other way that people 
I think, reinterpret the biblical text is what I would call more a hermeneutical issue that's, that's outside of any specific text. And what they'll say, in essence, was that, well, Paul was just, he was just a captive of his patriarchal homophobic culture. And therefore, of course, he's you know, speaking out against homosexual sexual behavior. And that, that argument might have a better chance if, Paul, if, if Paul's writings to Ro- the Romans and 1 Corinthians were actually to the Hebrews. Because the, the prohibition on homosexual sex was deeply grounded in the Mosaic law. And I think you could make that case more plausibly. But Paul is writing to the Romans and the Corinthians, the two most godless pagan cities in all of the first century. And Paul, I mean, if anything, Rome and Corinth represented the same kind of sexual smorgasbord that you have in any major metropolitan area around the world today. And Paul was actually writing something that was very countercultural for the ancient world. I mean, he, I mean, he was definitely not captivated by his culture if, if we look at the culture as the one that he was writing to. Uh, so I, uh, the, the other one that is maybe a little more, a little, little more contemporary is, is based on a historical assumption that, that virtually everyone in the first century was bisexual. And, that by, and, and so Paul's condemnation of homosexuality referred to a condemnation of sexual excess. Uh, but I think that, that is based on a very debatable historical assumption. It, it is a long way from being established that the vast majority of people were bisexual in the first century. I just I don't think that's true. Uh, I mean, homosexuality has never been more than about you know, four or five percent of any given population at any time in the history of civilization. Um, bisexuality is even more rare than that. So, I, I mean, we could, I mean, we, we, it would take considerably more time, I think, to, to answer uh-huh. that. But I think that what Paul is teaching here is not a prohibition on the orientation. It's what he's addressing is the behavior. Okay. Can you explain the ad hominem argument a little bit more? Well, we talked about different arguments and yeah. proponents for all of these topics that we just discussed, being autonomy, yeah. fairness, you know, some scholars speaking out and out. Speak a little bit more about ad yeah. hominem. Ad hominem is a Latin term that means, uh, you know, at the person. And an ad hominem argument is when you attack the person instead of the position. And so if I, don't, if I can't refute your argument anymore, I'll attack your character. Uh, or I'll say, you're, you're, you're being hateful. I mean, and this, the, the discussion about uh, same-sex marriage today has degenerated into almost, almost nothing more than ad hominem arguments. Um, and I think this is, this is where you, you know, we, we have to, I think we have to call this out for what it is. Because you can have legitimate disagreement and still love the person at the same time. Now, I admit we haven't been good models of this in the church. Uh, and maybe the reason that it's so easy to call someone hateful is because we just haven't modeled what it is to love people with whom we disagree. Okay. Um, let, let's move right along because I think we're, we're almost out of time. And I wanted to cover a couple more questions before we conclude. 
Uh, and that has to do with how the church should involve itself in, in the fight for human rights, specifically when it talks, uh, you know, when it comes to education, politics. You know, most recently we all know that transgender bathroom law was just passed this week. And how should we, how should we as evangelical Christians behave towards that? Uh, should we comply, yeah. not comply? Well, I think I, know, I know that's yeah, a, that's, that's another hour, yeah. but. You're, you're, you're testing my brevity here, <laughs> which is okay. Uh, for professors to have brevity is probably a good discipline that we need. Um, I think the church should definitely involve itself in uh, advocacy for essential human rights. We, we, ought, we ought to be involved in the discussion on human trafficking. We ought to be involved in the discussion on global religious freedom. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't do things sort of regularly that highlight the state of the persecuted church around the world, I'd suggest that you do that. Uh, my wife works for a, a ministry to the persecuted church called Open Doors, they're, and they're a great work. Um, but I, see, I, I don't think you can say that you stand for the gospel if you don't stand for the freedom to proclaim it. And so I think that's really important. Um, Fundamental human rights. I would stand for, the, for fundamental human rights for the unborn and for the elderly, which I think are the, there today the widow and the orphan of the ancient world, the most vulnerable among us. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that bathroom laws constitute what I would... I wouldn't put those on the same category as concern about human trafficking and global religious freedom. Um, Though I think that the transgender thing, I think, is, is, a, is a lot more complicated. I don't, I don't know of any place, except for one place in the Mosaic Law that, that uh, prohibits cross-dressing under the, under the Mosaic Law, that uh, speaks to the transgender issue. And this, I think, yeah, I recommend, a, there's a really good work on this that I just finished reading a few months ago by a, a, he's a psychiatrist on the East Coast by the name of Mark Yarhouse. And it's called, the, the title of the book is called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. It sounds like a technical title, but it's really not. It's, it's, it's totally accessible. Um, I view, gender dysphoria is defined as a, a, a conflict between the sex of your birth and the gender experience that someone has in their life. So as someone who is born as a male but tends to but experiences life more as a female or vice versa. Or maybe experiences, maybe experiences life more as a, in a genderless fashion. Um, and there, I think there are times when it's, when it's really clear uh, those are the times where, so, where a child is actually born with what's called ambiguous genitalia, where they, it, you don't know what the sex at birth is. And usually what happens in those cases is the parents make the choice and then some, whatever corrective surgery is needed to have the child identify with one biological sex, that's what's usually done at a very young age. In doing that, I think we have to, we have to be open to the possibility that the parents don't always make the right choice on that. I think at, at the least in those cases, I think efforts to manage sexual, gender dysphoria, the goal, I think, is to do that as non-invasively as possible, but I think we have to be open to sex changes in those cases 
where the parents just, they just assigned the wrong sex to the child. Uh, I take gender dysphoria to be a, a result of the general entrance of sin into the world, not some, not, uh, clearly not some specific sin on the part of the person. I don't think there's, there's no, I mean, there's no reason to suggest that. Um, and again, your house suggests, and I think correctly, that um, the, the, the goal is to, to manage that in the least invasive ways possible, but I think he's open to sex change if, that, if that's the only way to deal with that. I got a letter from a pastor, this was a couple years ago, saying, you know, what do I do? A person in my church came up to me, said they've had a sex change, uh, and wants to continue in full fellowship in the church. What do I do? I said, and I said, I don't see any reason why that person shouldn't be welcomed into the full fellowship of the church as long as they are committed to being a disciple of Christ and committed to sexual purity like everybody else is committed to. Um, so you, that may be pretty controversial. You may want to beat me up about that view afterwards. But this is, I think that the transgender issue, I think, is biblically, I think, more, more complicated. And the Bible just has a lot less to say about that than it does the same-sex attraction. Well, I wish we had a little bit more time to go specifically into this law that just passed because you, you talked about trans, transgenders uh, in a specific way, but the question was more related to the bathroom laws itself and how that speaks into what we talked about earlier, which could be the moral decay of our society moving forward for allowing that as yeah. one more area. I'd say the, the, only, the only thing that concerns me, I'll just put one sentence. The only thing that concerns me about the bathroom laws that, are, that have been passed is... I think we've, pro we've probably increased the vulnerability of some, probably more some women to sexual predators. And that's, that's, that would be the, the, the unintended, you know, side effect of those kinds of laws. That would, that's, that would trouble me about that being a, a consequence. Okay. Well, I want to ask you one more question before we conclude uh, this evening, and it has to do with, uh, I know we, in the audience, we have a lot of business people, business owners, but w what does the Bible say about the purpose of work or business? I know that's a general question, but can you touch on that? It's a huge moral issue, actually, and it's very appropriate that we talk about that, too. Um, I think the, the Bible is very clear that... All legitimate work has intrinsic value and is just as much a form of service to God as pastoring and missionary service. Paul puts this in Colossians 3, he puts it like this, in whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord, in what, for instance, in whatever you do, it's the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And I, I would suggest that all of you, if you are a follower of Christ, are in full-time ministry. The term ministry, I think, is better rendered service. And every believer is in full-time service for the king. And you came, you entered full-time service at what point? What point would that would be? When you came to faith. Okay? Nobody leaves full-time service. You change arenas of service, which is what you did when you left your business to come, in, to come on the pastoral staff. 
I try, to, I, I try not to use terms like higher callings, full-time ministry, because that, that implies to the, to the person in the workplace that they're, they're either in part-time or no-time ministry. And that's not, that's not true theologically. Uh, God ordained work in Genesis 2 in paradise before sin entered in. Your war, I got news for you. Your work is not your penalty. Right? And you, may, you might not like this, but when the Lord returns, you will likely still be working. Some of you don't. I don't like the look I'm getting from some of you. <laughs> but the prophets say that we will beat our swords into what? Plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. The implements of war get transformed into the implements of productive work. I think we, ought to change, we need to change the way we talk about this because there's no such thing as secular jobs. Because if, if you mean by secular, a place where God is not, I got news for you, there's no such place. There's no such workplace where that's true. And I love it when people say, you know, how can I bring God into the workplace? Hey, I got news for you. He's already there. And he happens to be way ahead of you. And I, I, so I try not to... I actually try not to use the term ministry without some sort of qualifier. You're in pastoral ministry, just like you might be in accounting ministry or in filmmaking ministry or in financial services ministry or in nursing or whatever it is. I think we have a... Um, let me I'll tell one story and then we'll stop. Yeah, promise? Listen, promise. Okay. You're tough. <laughs> really good friends who are coming back from a vacation and on the jetway off the airplane... She collapsed, had it turned out, had a little tumor at the base of her brain that caused her to black out. Tumor was removed through outpatient uh, gamma knife surgery. She went home the same day. It's fine today. My friend was marveling at all the occupations that had to, had to come together to facilitate her healing. And he was particularly taken with the software designers who wrote the, who wrote the, the uh, diagnostic software that could enable the surgeon to pinpoint exactly where the tumor was. You know what he said about that, that person, assuming they're a follower of Christ? He said, I sure am glad that person didn't decide to leave their business to go serve the Lord full time. And I think, that, I think he got it right. And that's, why, that's what we mean about the nobility of daily work. The, the very, it's, not just, you know, it's not just those other things you do in the workplace, like praying for coworkers or you know, having a Bible study in the office. It's the very work you do as well that's a part of your service to God. That was, that was great. Thank you. Well, Dr. Ray, we just want to thank you for being here this evening. My pleasure. Thank this you was guys fun. All very here. much yeah. fun being with all of you. Thank you for the questions. I do want to let you know, um, and he, he doesn't know I'm going to do this, but he has published 11 books. He doesn't like to sell them at events because that's another moral issue, that thing that he, I'm not, he doesn't I'm not he above doesn't... some shameless self-promotion, though. <laughs> but if you are interested in pursuing some of his books, you can find them on Amazon. Anywhere else we could find them? That's probably the best place. There you go. And he has 11 to choose from. So with that, I thank you guys all for coming. And let me close this in prayer before we conclude. And you're free to go, especially if you have kids. Heavenly Father, we are just thankful to you for tonight. Lord, we pray and we hope that we have glorified you tonight. And Lord, that love has prevailed and that everything hinges on your love, Lord. So we just ask that you would be glorified and that we would be a different people as a result of hearing this tonight and as a result of walking out of those doors into our, our worlds, Father, our workplaces, wherever it may be, that we can just be
be a different people, extending that and embracing that love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.